Welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Uh, today I'm here with uh, Dr. Tom Mason from the University of Manchester talking about his recently published article on uh, pay for performance funding in um, drug treatment services. The article was titled, Did Paying Drugs Misuse Treatment Providers for Outcomes Lead to Unintended Consequences for Hospital Admissions? Difference in Differences Analysis of Pay for Performance Scheme in England. So, uh, Tom, uh, welcome to Addiction Audio. Uh, Your study looked at the relationship between pay for performance, sometimes called um, payment by results, uh, funding and emergency hospital admissions. Can you summarise what you found? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so what we found was that, well, we actually did a few studies of this. Um, we were funded by the Department of Health to do a, a wider project evaluating the scheme. And we initially did some uh, evaluations that looked at the impact of the scheme on the population in tr- who actually were in treatment in the pilot areas. And we did a comparative study looking at the pilot areas compared with the non-pilot areas, the pilot areas being the areas where the paper performance scheme was introduced and the non-pilot areas being where they just went on the traditional funding methods. And we've, we found kind of mixed results on uh, in terms of the impact on those in treatment for drugs misuse. Um, and what we did in this study was we actually wanted to extend the evaluation to not just those who were in treatment, but actually look at a wider population who have a risk of drugs misuse. Um, And we did this by looking at hospital um, episodes data. And in doing so, we found that essentially uh, hospital admissions, and in particular emergency hospital admissions, uh, increased both in the pilot and non-pilot areas, but by substantially and significantly more in the pay-for-performance areas compared with the um, non-pay-for-performance areas. So essentially, this was a finding that showed that the scheme itself led to uh, an increased risk of a hospital admission for somebody who might have a risk of drugs misuse. Were there any indications from the data as to why that might be the case? Why this particular funding model might have an impact on hospital admissions? Yeah, there was. So when we looked at the impact evaluation on the treatment population in the community-based treatment um, services, we found that there was a number of effects. There was increased waiting times. There was um, a decrease in, police, uh, in, in people actually starting their treatment, having, uh, you know, kind of been triaged and assigned to treatment. They were dropping out. They were declining to actually start their treatment. And there was also um, an increase in people, drop, uh, in, in people declining to continue with their treatment, having started it. Um, so there was kind of what we would we might think of a mix of impacts on access to treatment, different dimensions of access, um, and also including the acceptability of treatment. Um, part of our evaluation, uh, wider evaluation, was a qualitative study that looked at what um, what the kind of um, people with substance misuse disorders in those areas were experiencing, and the nature of their treatment was changing slightly. So because the pay-for-performance scheme linked their uh, linked payment to abstinence-focused outcomes. Um, there was a stronger focus on taking people away from certain um, therapies such as substitute prescribing, and in some instances, this was very. Um, this was not what the people in treatment were used to, and so there was a, a mix of these effects on access, and, and we know from the literature that. Um, 
being in treatment is a good preventer of hospitalisation. And so we wanted to examine whether there were any effects on hospitalisation. Um, but because we were unable to have linked data, so we were unable to link the people in treatment into the hospital data and identify them in the two data sets, um, we, we kind of had to have a workaround of how we did that, um, but we were able to do it. Uh, one of the things that you, you mentioned briefly in the paper is that, is that there isn't any evidence for this, what's been called kind of cherry picking. I guess one of the concerns that, that, that was raised around payment by results was that treatment staff might somehow not bring people into treatment if they didn't think they were going to get money out of them, which which seems doesn't... It's not something I recognise from ever having worked in addiction treatment services, but but I think it's important to kind of tease that out a bit, that, that that's not the mechanism by which there were fewer admissions to treatment. Yeah, exactly. No, that's right. We, we didn't find any evidence of that. The, the concerns around cherry-picking and pay-for-performance and kind of... Um, reimbursement um, reform anyway stems back further to kind of the way there was a changes to the way hospitals were funded um, to try and use more active forms of reimbursement and create links between quality and payment and activity and payment. The cherry, the, the issue of cherry picking, um, essentially what, what tends to happen to try and prevent it is that um, schemes try and include a, what they call a risk adjustment. So they try and work out from um, data and um, an evaluation and a triage of a patient whether what their level of complexity is, how um, kind of serious their problem is, and then they adjust the tariff, they adjust the payments to be related to that. And so it's kind of generally thought that where the tariff does a good job of adjusting for the complexity of a, of a patient and paying more for the most complicated and difficult to treat patients, that, that that's the best way of preventing cherry picking. I think the, the evidence we have is that the scheme was quite good at preventing cherry picking. And also, as you say, you know, professionals, you know, don't necessarily operate like that anyway. Um, but the, 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 what, one of the issues was, was this issue of waiting times. And that was because there's this whole kind of pre-treatment uh, phase that was introduced, the kind of the triage and the um, kind of putting patients onto the correct complexity adjustment, the correct risk adjustment score. And in many ways, that extra layer of administration, even though it was good at preventing the cherry picking from happening, that was one of the reasons that waiting times went up and you got more people dropping out before they even started treatment. So I think the scheme did a from what from what we were able to evaluate, did a good job of preventing cherry picking, but an unfortunate consequence of doing that was that it increased the administrative burden and increased the waiting times to get into treatment and and reduced access to treatment. It's it's, it's interesting. So like, so there's an increased administrative burden. There were um, potentially not such good outcome results, and there's increased hospital admissions. I mean it. It doesn't read well for pay for performance as a as a funding model. So it it seems surprising that providing financial incentives for improved outcomes could have such a range of potentially negative um, effects. Is it that that kind of funding model is inapplicable to addiction treatment, or do you think there are ways of improving that kind of funding model so that it does work? 
Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. So I think what has tended to happen in pay-for-performance schemes more generally in healthcare, um, in particular in, say, primary care or secondary care, is they've tended to link payment to what they, what you might call care processes. So kind of, for example, giving a patient an aspirin on arrival at hospital who is having a suspected type of stroke. You know, that's a kind of well-established care pathway that's applicable to most of the target population. And therefore, it's a really cost-effective, sensible. And, you know, if hospitals are kind of really variable in whether they're doing that, then that seems like a really kind of sensible way of designing a pay-for-performance scheme. In this case, payment was linked to outcomes rather than to... there, there There were some links to care processes. So, and interestingly, they were some of the more positive findings we had from the impact evaluation was that... There was improvement on certain health and well-being measures within treatment, um, such as vaccination against infectious diseases and so on. But the, the the main bulk of payment was linked to a longer-term outcome, which was discharge from treatment, uh, abstinent from drugs of presentation, and that is what I would say is that that is a is a a very complex outcome, and addiction treatment. Um, it's not kind of, there is no one size fits all treatment for a patient, you know, with a stroke, there's kind of quite well established care pathways that apply to most patients. That isn't the case so much for um, addiction. And also, you know, it involves a massive range of government services. It's not just addiction treatment services, there's housing, there's welfare, there's other parts of the government that come together. On top of that, there's the individual's own contribution to the outcome. So that a lot, when you're paying um a provider on an outcome that's quite a lot of a lot of what contributes to that outcome is beyond their control then there's a question as to whether how appropriate that is and actually one of the questions we had was how well that was designed based on the evidence that was already there the evidence already there being the evidence that linking to care processes for very homogenous kind of care pathways in what is a very contested field of evidence anyway, that is probably one of the few areas of consensus. It's, it's really interesting. Um, but one of the drives at the time when we were, when pay for performance or uh, payment by results was being implemented was, was almost to try and move away from processes towards outcome. I think there was a lot of discussion about, um, and people used it as a pejorative term, people being parked on methadone and the outcome was getting people on methadone. And that some of this was to try and incentivize a kind of onwards uh, movement. Um, and I think I think it's really important that, that research like yours pulls apart how effective that is, because it may seem like common sense. But but actually, when you look at those outcomes, it's it is, like you say, a, a much more, a much more complicated situation. Are there, are there any indications um, looking at the future with the changes to Public Health England and um and funding structures. Are there any indications that payment by results is going to be repiloted, or, or has this been kind of shelved indefinitely? Yeah, it, it's hard to say. Our sense was that it was it was well understood that the kind of the pilot hadn't quite had the results that had been hoped. Um, you're right to say that this was um, something of a not not necessarily based on the on the evidence of how pay, of pay for performance and kind of the efficacy of harm reduction as a treatment. Um, you know, there was a kind of, there's a question as to whether there was a kind of moral component to the idea of, you know, 
the government shouldn't fund um, schemes that allow people to be just on methadone indefinitely. So the, the, only, the only other thing to say would be that there was, um, after the pilot ended, areas were basically allowed to choose what they did. So it was basically down to local commissioners in the 149 geographical commissioning areas to decide whether they incorporated some form of paper for, for performance into their uh, payment models. Um, our sense was that some were doing it, but um, not it, not in the way that it was piloted. So there may be that they, they may have taken some of those lessons as to kind of putting that much um, kind of income at risk of something very uncertain and and kind of in some ways arbitrarily punishing or rewarding providers based on things that were a lot beyond their control was probably not um, sensible. And actually, it ignores a lot of the risks that remain with payers and commissioners. You know, ultimately, the idea that this is a way of transferring risk to the provider, financial risk to the provider, doesn't make any sense if at an aggregate level costs increase anyway. So you've got more hospital admissions, fewer people in treatment. You know, that is not... The, the risk is still there with the government. The government still carries that financial risk. And I think that's an important lesson from the scheme as well. Moving briefly on to the methods, uh, this was real-world research. So you used data from actual treatment services operating in the community. It wasn't a highly controlled, randomised controlled trial where the only discernible differences were, were the intervention. I think this is incredibly valuable research, particularly when you're looking at real-world um, uh, real world in inverted commas interventions and funding streams. But were there any challenges about trying to control for things that, that you weren't able to control for? Yeah, so, th- I mean, these methods are methods that I'm quite familiar with and kind of some of my co-authors uh, have used a lot and are very familiar with. Um, you know, we tend to use observational data. My background's in economics and econometrics. And so we're used to the situation where you don't have clinical trial data. You, you're kind of absent of that experimental ideal and you, so you do have to look to an alternative uh, design. What we did in this study was we actually used hospital uh, episode statistics because they're very comprehensive. Basically, if anyone has a hospital admission or even an any attendance, you will be in that national data set. Um, and they contain a range of information on kind of patient characteristics, um, residents, administrative information like diagnoses and so on. And so we were able to um, locate patients in certain areas who had some history of a substance misuse hospital admission and basically compare before and after um, with those patients who uh, were not in the pay for performance areas. Um, there are certain challenges so there's a lot of there's a lot of assumptions that sit behind the um the model we use difference in differences including you essentially assuming that the the trend after the policy comes in um would have continued would would follow the trend in the counterfactual which is the kind of um which you assume to be the control areas um you assume that that is what would have happened in the absence of the intervention in the intervention areas and then the difference between that and what you observe is kind of the difference in differences effect. So it's quite well known and well established and it sometimes gets called different things in different fields. So some call it a controlled before and after. Um, I think it's one of the more robust, it's one of the most robust approaches for getting a causal effect in the absence of 
um, the experimental ideal. But to come back to those assumptions, there's certain tests that you need to do to test the plausibility of the assumptions holding up. One of those is testing for parallel pretrends in the intervention and comparison areas. Um, and we did that and, you know, that we got suitable evidence that the, the assumption held and therefore the method was a valid one to use in this case. Um, we had reasonable controls. We had age, sex, um, deprivation, ethnic origin and um, other things like a, a year trend and so on. Um, but there's there's always there's always limitations with a setup like this. I mean, there's certain things that you would want to control for that you can't. Um, but you you can often rely on the fact that you would have had to basically see some some different something would have had to change differently over time in the two areas um, in, with respect to one of those controls. And so the difference in differences is quite um, helpful in kind of making confounding less of a problem. It's it's a strong. I I think it's a strong method when it's when it's used well appropriately, with appropriate data and appro- and kind of proper testing of the assumptions and so on. I think um, it's a strong method, and um, we had some very um, good and thorough reviewers for this study who um, really helped us to make sure we did the most authoritative and careful job as possible, and making sure the methods were appropriate. So. Um, yeah, that's always good. You can always rely on the reviewers to make sure the methods are, uh, are t- watertight. Um, okay, that's fantastic. Uh, thank you. Uh, is there anything else um, that you want to say about it before we finish? No, just that uh, I really enjoyed this um, paper. It was it actually formed part of my PhD originally. Um, and I think it's actually quite innovative because it's an innovative way of trying to address the research question. You know, we didn't have the data you would ideally want. Um, it's not on the population in treatment, it's a wider population. Um, but I think it was quite an innovative way of kind of making sure that research includes certain populations that might not be included in research normally. So not just a trial, um, you actually go to a wider real world population and try and use a strong design to uncover the answer to a question. So I, I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Tom Mason, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Rob.